Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything. Kids, health, aged parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. really excited to welcome my guest today, Tasha Sadler. Tasha is a goldsmith with more than 20 years experience. She's also a busy mom and the owner of Rhythm Jewelry, a jewelry company that focuses on jewelry for dancers. I can't wait to hear more about her story and her journey. Welcome, Tasha. Okay, welcome, Tasha. Nice to have you on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. Super excited about this. I've been watching all the really cool stuff she's been doing in her business and jewelry design. And I just was really excited to to have her on the show. I was actually scrolling through some podcast guests page and I read her bio and her picture and I'm like, oh, this would be a super cool guest. And then I looked again, I'm like, I even know that person. (laughs) So it was funny. I didn't actually, when I read your bio, I didn't even realize who it was. And it was only afterwards. Um, that I realized that, but so you are a jewelry designer, which is a really, or I guess is a jewelry designer or is it goldsmith? What is the actual term? I tend to go by goldsmith just because they, they're slightly different, but you can, you can kind of use both. Did someone inspire you to go into that field? Did you get a taste of it in a work experience or what made you want to go into that field? It sounds very random, doesn't it? Yeah. I always tell people when I, when they ask me what I do for a living, I'm like, oh, I'm a goldsmith. I swear it's a real job. It's not pretend. <laughs> so I actually started working in a jewelry store when I was 15. It was my high school part-time job. I worked there two days a week. And then fast forward, I worked there on and off for uh, many years. And I was raised by a fairly artistic mother who was always doing all sorts of artistic things. So I have a bit of a knack for the arts as well. And jewelry was something that I already knew. And goldsmithing is a really great way to combine the artistry with a job that will also help you pay your bills because there's a very large repair aspect to it, as well as just designing things and, you know, selling at farmer's markets or on a website type of thing. So I worked there for years and then I did some traveling for a few years. I went to Asia for a couple of years and then I actually went to college in Montana and I graduated there in, I think, 2008 with a certificate in goldsmithing and another certificate in CAD design for jewelry. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. My kids have, my kids are into robotics and design and stuff. So they've taken some CAD courses, but I didn't realize there was actually a CAD course for jewelry. So you can actually map everything out 3D before you design it. Is that the idea? Yeah. So CAD is kind of the new school of jewelry. So I'm trained in both. So let's say, for example, you're making an engagement. The traditional way of making that would be carving it by wax normally because wax, I mean, you can make it out of the metal straight away depending on what you're doing. But if you're getting really complicated or really intricate designs, it's a lot easier to work with wax than it is to work with metal. So you would carve it basically using files by hand out of wax and then you would take the wax and cast it from there. So what the CAD allows you to do is you design it on the computer first 
and then the computer will tell the machine how to make the wax. So they'll either mill the wax or they'll grow it, which basically means the it goes back and forth over top of itself and it spits out wax and grows the wax up. Kind so, of like a 3D printer, that wax very, Yes. Yeah, same concept. A lot of the a lot of the programs are very similar. A lot of the machines are very similar. They're just smaller usually. Yeah, and where the CAD is really helpful, I find for for what I use it for, is when you're doing like lettering or logo work, that CAD can give you very crisp letters. So if I'm trying to write your your name and put it on a ring, I can get a lot more exact crisp lettering through the CAD than I would if I was trying to cut that by hand. Got it. But maybe if you were trying to make a more flowing, different kind of design, then you might go more old school and actually carve it out of the wax or you would still do that in CAD. Like you have a process in your mind as to what what direction you go. Yeah, it's definitely a per piece decision. Some people prefer to use the CAD for everything. Some people prefer to do hand for almost everything. I tend to kind of float back and forth between the two, depending on the project that I'm doing. Interesting. Okay. And so, so you, you dabbled your feet in it in school, got a taste for it, went away to school, got a certificate. And then did you come back and immediately just open up shop or did, is there kind of like a apprenticeship type thing where once you get that certification, you then go mentor, like work with someone or how does that process work? Yeah. So there aren't a lot of rules in jewelry design. So I went to school. A lot of people don't. I went to school for that. And then when I finished, I came back to Canada and I started working for a studio here in the city. Very busy. We did a lot of work for the chain stores. A lot of the small towns and cities have mom and pop privately owned jewelry stores. So they were sending us all of their repairs and manufacturing work. So you go, you go to school for two years and you're very immersed in it, but just like any trade, it takes a long time to learn what you're doing. So I, I had my certificates, but as I started working in this studio, I was very fortunate that I was working with six other goldsmiths at the time who were all trained in various aspects of jewelry making. So I got to learn all sorts of things from them. And the really interesting thing for me too is You can have four people in a room that are all trained as goldsmiths, but each person has their own different way of doing things and their different techniques of doing things. So you can learn all the different techniques and then pick the technique that works best for you. And then that's kind of what you stick with going. Interesting how that applies to so many industries too, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm a mortgage broker and one of the other industries I'm in is in veterinary medicine. And you see like veterinarians graduate, which is totally different. It's not an artistic field. It's a very scientific field, but they do the same thing. You can have four different veterinarians and the way they will approach a case, every single one of them goes at it from a different angle. They get the same end result, but they have, you know, they either prefer a different piece of equipment or they prefer different diagnostics or they just, their thought process is different. And it's interesting that you see that, you know, across all areas and you see that in jewelry design too. And so you take what works and I guess you discard what doesn't and you slowly start to develop your own personal style and technique. Yeah, absolutely. So then I worked in that studio for about 10 years. And then four years ago, I started working on my own. So I have a studio here. My girls are very little. So it it gave me the flexibility at the time to, you know, juggle work with kids at the same time because your hours you know, sometimes I need to be in the studio at 11 at night or five in the morning and not nine to five, like regular jobs would have you work. 
So I still do all of my custom jewelry that I normally have done. Uh, I have enough of a clientele built up that I still keep doing that. And then I started four years ago, a company that makes jewelry designed for dancers. Yeah. We're going to talk about that a bit in a minute. Yeah. But is your studio in your home or do you have to drive? Like you said, you you want to be sort of self-employed because you have kids at home. So is your studio attached to your house then? Like you can just walk over there. Yeah. Go at home. Yeah. I have a studio at home and then I have, as you know, as you're, as you get busier, you have to learn to kind of farm things out to other people or delegate to other people because there's just not enough hours in the day. So I have a network of people that I can also send things to that help me out as well. So we're either doing things in the studio here. I have people that come in and help me here, or I send certain things out to people. My casting, for example, I won't do casting here. I'll send that out. Yeah. And that's a good point because I've talked to a lot of people, you know, that are really successful and often what they'll say, what held them back for the longest time is not delegating, not being willing, like, like wanting to micromanage everything. And when they finally became willing to let that go and say, actually, you know what, you do this and you do this and I'll focus on this. Their business actually was able to grow because they kind of got to a point where they could only do so much on their own. And so, you know, that also caps your sales because it caps your workload or it starts to bleed into your family time and then you have no life. So it sounds like you've been able to figure out how to do that. And and so how do you decide, like, what jobs are you willing to farm out? What jobs are, are jobs that only you will do? Like, how do you figure that out when you're deciding what to, what to kind of give away? Not give away, but you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It's been a bit of a struggle. I think most small business owners, particularly ones where you're making your own product or being creative, it's hard to let that go to someone else. You want to, you want to you kind of want to have your fingers in the honey pot of everything because it's, you're putting your, your name on it. So I think what I did early on is I tried to establish the areas that I'm, I'm good at with any trade. There's certain areas in goldsmithing that I'm good at. There's certain areas that I still have much more to learn, but I know people who are amazing and I would probably never, ever be at the level that they're at. So hand engraving, for example, you can spend an entire lifetime learning how to hand engrave. I know someone who's the most phenomenal hand engraver, so I'll ship that out to him. Some of the more tedious jobs, at some point in time in your business, sales are sales are key right so at some point in time in your business you have to look at if it's going to take me 6 hours or 8 hours to make this engagement ring or manufacture this particular piece would it make more sense for me to send that to someone and pay them to do it and now that just freed up 8 hours of my life that i could spend bringing in more sales yeah because at the end of the day you're that you're the face of your company and people realistically want they want to deal with you, not yeah. else, right? Yeah. And what is your time worth, right? You know, we've talked about that on previous shows. You know, if you make say 80 or a hundred dollars an hour, when you're doing what you're really good at, is it worth it for you to do that $20 an hour job that you could be paying someone $20 an hour because you're, you're essentially losing the other 60 by, 
by doing that that job, right? And there's probably someone that's happy to do it. And then the other thing it sounds like is you've created relationships with people you trust, right? So you're not just farming stuff up to out to anyone. You've actually built a relationship with someone and you know that when you send it to them, what you're going to get back is something you're going to be proud of and you're willing to put your name on and stand behind, which is probably a bit of a feat in itself, I would think, is finding those people that you trust to, to do those jobs for you. Absolutely. That's key. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot. So whether it's something at home, whether it's someone you trust to watch your kids so that your brain can be on work rather than what's happening with your kids or someone that is helping you with your manufacturing. For example, for me, because I'm mostly online with with the dance jewelry, I found a really great photographer here in the city. I call her my 90 day fiance because I reached out to her through Instagram. (laughs) So I just messaged her on Instagram and was like, you do dance photography. I make dance jewelry. We're not conflicting. Like we should be able to help each other out somehow. And now fast forward a few years later, we have this great relationship. She does all of my photography for me. I help her out when she's doing studio shoots or if I'm doing a, a bigger collaboration or I just did a big collaboration this year and it was it was a big deal for her career to be able to take photos of the couple that I designed with. So she's my go-to. She's the person that I'll go to first. And you can't you can't put a price on being able to trust someone to the point where if she is doing a photo shoot for me, I don't even really have to be there. I'm there but I don't have to tell her what to do. She just knows exactly exactly what I need and, and what I want. And I think establishing those relationships is one of, is probably the most important part of your business. I agree. You know, people sometimes say relationships are everything and I didn't get it in the beginning, but now I really do. Like re- those relationships are literally everything. Like they are the glue that holds your business together. And what you're talking about, that kind of symbiotic relationship where you help her, she helps you. There's this flow of reciprocity between you and this total trust, right? Like she knows that you're going to come through and you know that she's going to, and, and it just gives you both the ability to focus on on other stuff because you're not thinking, oh, great, is she going to screw this up? Is she going to make me look bad? You know that she's already got your vision in her head and and vice versa, right? Yeah. 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 It's kind of like that work spouse thing almost like you. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. And that was, I read your book. It's fantastic, by the way. I'm not quite finished. I've got like three chapters left. It was very good. But that was one of the things that I felt was one of the key ideas in your book that I follow as well too is approaching every relationship, whether it's personal or business, approaching them from the point of view of giving value. Mm -hmm. So how can I give you value? I don't need anything in return. I just want to give you value. And if you focus on giving other people value, then eventually that value comes back to you, whether you wanted it to come back to you or not. So every relationship I hit, that's kind of the focus I have when I go into it. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. And and I think that really is the thing that when you really dive into people that are really successful, that's something they've figured out is that they don't walk into stuff saying, what are you going to do for me? They walk into it saying, how can I help you? And and sooner or later, like you say, whether you, whether you wanted it to, whether you asked for it to come back or not, it does. And it comes back with you know so much abundance for you. Just shifting gears a little bit, you were talking about there's a repair aspect, there's a custom aspect. What demographic is your business? Like how much of each of those makes up your business? Like how much time do you spend doing repairs? How much of your business is custom orders? And then you have a whole dance line that I think we're going to talk about in a minute, but how, 
A, how do you figure out how to sort of sort that all out? And how is it kind of organically sort of shifted into those compartments? So the dance, the dance jewelry takes a little bit more effort and time because it's newer and not quite as established. And that industry, what we create doesn't really exist in that industry. So there's a little bit of a learning curve there explaining to people exactly what it is that we do. So that takes a lot more time and effort. The repair work and the custom design, I always say is the meat and potatoes of my life. That's the consistent, I've, I've done it for so long that it's word of mouth and I'm always getting, you know, can you make me an engagement ring? My ring broke, can you size it? So those are always coming through. It's not necessarily consistent. Jewelry has a, when you're in small business, there's always the natural ebbs and flows. But the idea being is if I have increasing the revenue streams, if I have revenue streams coming from different areas, then one should take over when the other one is not necessarily as profitable. For example, you could do four engagement rings in one month and then go two months without hardly having anything, just doing repairs or, you know, so it's trying to find that balance and keep things. Speaking of that ebb and flow, is there a seasonality to it? You know, like, do you find that getting closer to June and wedding season and things like that, you got a bigger run on engagement rings? Absolutely. Absolutely. Repairs, almost all year round, you'll get repairs. You can guarantee in January, you're going to get sizings because everybody gets rings for Christmas and then they all need to be sized. I was much more able to predict the ebb and flow before COVID hit. And now things have kind of gone a little askew. So you would have a very large wedding band influx for people getting ready for summer weddings, right? So you would get a wedding band influx in like spring-ish. Now people are scheduling their weddings whenever the COVID restrictions are going to allow them to. Before you used to have a lot of all-inclusive weddings, people would fly or have their wedding, you know, summer warm, or it's very common to propose when you're on a trip summer warm. So you'd always get that big influx, usually in the fall, late fall of of guys being, oh, we're going to Mexico in February. Can you make me a ring? Because I want to propose. And now it's kind of, people are proposing at random all the time. So it's not as easy to predict, but. Interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the dance stuff, actually. So I also want to kind of talk about that design process, but, you know, it, A, how, what made you go into that field? Because it sounds like it's a fairly new thing. And B, what are the special considerations, right? They're athletes, they're moving there's got to be some design considerations to those pieces that are unique to other pieces. It's a little random for me because I'm not a dancer. So that's the first question I get from everybody is, are you a dancer? And I always tell them dance takes a lot of training and time. And so does goldsmithing. And there just wouldn't have been enough room for both in my life. So what actually wound up happening is I have some friends who are professional dancers. They teach ballet. One friend in particular has taught ballet for a very long time. And every year she would call me at Christmas and order some pieces to give to her assistants or to give to the other teachers that she worked with, the studio owner. And she would say to me every year, you need to do a line of jewelry for dancers because there's just nothing available. And then I had a few other friends of mine who were in the dance world saying the same thing. And it it started to turn to the point of harassment. <laughs> so I thought I should really take a look at it. And I, so we did some market research and there really wasn't anything. I think there's this idea that when you, when you think of a dancer, a lot of people think of an eight-year-old or a five-year-old in a 
in a tutu at a recital. But there's this whole genre of people, this big group of people who dance professionally. They've danced their entire lives. They spend more time at the studio than they do at home with their own families. And everything that was on the market was designed for five-year-old ballerinas. And it was all kind of, you know, $10 and costume. So we tried to incorporate their love of dance into a line of jewelry that I felt that they deserved. So a little bit more of a fine jewelry line. Yeah. And then of course with the CAD, because of the the CAD, I was already doing so many logo pieces. Most of the dance studios and um, ballet companies, they're already offering clothing merchandise with their logo on it. So we offer them a piece of jewelry that's either logo based or they design it off of the vibe of their studio. Very cool. So they get this unique, authentic piece that represents their studio. And and you've tapped into something that isn't out there in the market. Oh, and I understand. I heard there's some big names in the dance business that are wearing your pieces. Is that correct? Yes. So l- last year, I've done some collaboration collections before. So essentially what work, what happens in a collaboration collection is you design it with someone else, which is my most very favorite thing to do because... When you collaborate with someone, it takes you down these rabbit holes of places you never thought you were going to go. So most of the time, I wind up designing something that I never in a million years ever would have thought of designing on my own. So last year, we launched a collection with Taylor and Ray Fatala. They're from Edmonton. They're sisters. Taylor was the youngest dancer to tour with Janet Jackson. They both have done a lot of work with Disney and it's hard to sum them up in a very short period of time but we designed a collection with them I designed with Anna McNulty who's also Canadian and she has a very large following on YouTube I think her TikTok now is at like 7 million or something like it's quite and she does a lot of stretching and almost contortion she has a lot of stretching tutorials so we designed a piece with her the year before last year and then in November we launched a collection with Nappy Tabs So Tabitha and Napoleon Dumo. If you're in the dance world, they're very well known. Many people who aren't in the dance world also know them. If you've never heard of them before, there is a very good chance that you know their work. They do a lot of movie work. They do a lot of the choreography and creative directing for Jennifer Lopez. They do a lot of the the Vegas residencies. They put on a lot of those shows. Any of the shows on TV that are dance-related they do a lot of work on there. They did the creative directing for Jennifer Lopez's Super Bowl halftime show. So yeah, so we designed a collection together and launched that in November. Very cool. That's exciting for sure. Just going back to the pandemic again. So you said this couple pandemic years have not been quite like normal years. So, you know, maybe I've been affected the same way as restaurants or gyms, but how has COVID, how has the pandemic affected your business model and either the way you operate or the you know, the way you expected things to go? I think it's been really hard on everyone. I mean, for me, it's been really interesting to see how many small businesses managed to pivot during COVID. And some of them managed to make their business thrive even better than it was before COVID hit. So it's really interesting to see those stories. For me in particular, the regular custom just keeps going. It's just... People are always getting engaged. Things shifted a little bit, but it, it just keeps going. I did wind up doing, which I was really surprised, a lot of remounts, which is people bringing in their old gold and you know they broke their chains and they have 
rings that they no longer wear. And then we melt them down and make it into something new. My personal opinion is people were at home and had more time to maybe go through their jewelry boxes and, oh, I think I've been wanting to remake this for 10 years. Let's do it. So that really upped during COVID. For the dance jewelry side of things, the entire dance community, I would say in general is struggling. There's, you know, a lot of a lot of the studios have been shut down and then open and then shut down and open. And then of course, all of the live performances in most places were shut down for a very long time. So I think that's been really hurtful for the performing arts community in general. So they're slowly trying to maneuver and get things done more virtually, which I think is helping. It's starting to come back, but it's been a bit of a struggle for us personally. We're online. So the sales, of course, were still coming in. When it comes to our custom, we really pulled back on advertising that. We just didn't feel, you know, some of the studios are having a difficult time getting enough students to pay the bills every month. So we didn't feel it was right to advertise at that particular moment in time. But instead, we approach it from a point of value. It's reached out to random dancers that we were inspired by and felt like they were doing a good job. And we just gave away a ton of free, a ton of free jewelry just to kind of spread the love and keep doing what you're doing. And we'll be back to dancing together soon. So we just kind of tried to pivot a little bit and Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And so that's your little pivot, I guess. Yeah. So your mom, your stepmom, what, like, what does your normal day look like as an entrepreneur who's also a parent? It's busy. It's very yeah. busy. <laughs> so because I have the studio at home, that's very helpful because my hours are a little, a little wacky. I remember when Lydia was a newborn, I had her on a pretty good schedule, but I remember coming down three hours before she would wake up in the morning. So I could get three hours of quiet time in to to do what I needed to do. And then you're working through nap times. Now they're in school. Lydia is only in school two mornings a week. She's in preschool now. So it's a bit of a juggle trying to fit everything in. Lots of times if we're having family time in the evening, watching TV, I'm also on my computer emailing. and Yeah. Doing- yeah. Kills but- my ADD is kicking in and I'm just going back to another thought. So Ooh, when you nice. said that people get their jewelry remade, so do you yourself physically melt that down or do you send it somewhere? And and I could have sworn I saw a little TikTok video or something of you the other day with these little gold beads. Like, is that how you get your, your gold? So two questions. One is when they remake it and one when you make it from new. Do you melt it in the studio or? Yeah, it depends on what it is. If we're doing something basic. So a very common thing for a remount is to just do like a plain cuff bracelet So if you have, uh, let's say you have a bunch of earrings and you lost one earring, but you've got one, or you have a bunch of broken chains, broken chains make great cuff bracelets because it's a nice soft mixture. So we'll melt it down and basically just using a huge torch. It's, it's not, it's not really rocket science. You just use a huge torch. Really? Okay. up until it's liquid. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, there's a bit of a technique to it. Yeah. And then, yeah. Don't try this at home is what we're saying. Yeah. I don't want to know what you're doing a little bit. And then you pour it into, depending on the shape that you want to go. So let's say we're doing a cuff bracelet. You have a big, long piece of metal. It's got a name and I can't remember what it's called at the moment, but you pour it into it and essentially make it into a long stick. And then I have what's called a rolling mill. So it's two big metal wheels and you put yeah. your gold through that and you run the crank and it will slowly shape it into what you need. Like my girls love to come into the studio and roll yeah. pennies. So you can yeah. take a penny 
turn it into a little thin piece of paper. That when we were kids in some kind of a machine. Yeah. And my husband does that on, he's a welder. So when he makes, he makes ornamental gates sometimes. So he does that on a way bigger level, but with a big piece of aluminum and put it through this giant roller, right? To bend it. Only tiny. Yeah. And then when we're doing the more complicated casting, I send that out because there is uh, professional casting companies. So the reason why I do that is it's called lost wax casting. So when you carve a wax, so let's say we have, let's say you spend six hours carving an engagement ring wax or whatever it happens to be. So the process that happens after that is they take that wax and they attach a small stick of wax to it, which is going to be called your sprue. That goes inside a canister and then you fill that canister up with investment, which basically looks like plaster of Paris. You shake out all the bubbles. It goes inside a kiln for the for a few hours or a night. I can't remember. I haven't cast in a long time. And then what happens is it takes that investment and it hardens it and it burns the wax away. And then what happens is, is that investment turns almost into like a cake pan mold, essentially. Oh, okay. It burns your original away. So that's where the problem is. If you screw up during the casting or you make a mistake in the investment, that wax is gone. You're starting all over from scratch. You're starting all over from scratch. If it's on the CAD, not a problem. You can just print off another one. But when you're doing it by hand, it's a little different. So now that you have that kind of like a, it's not really a mold, but now that you have that opening in the investment, you heat your metal up until it's liquid. So those little beads that you would have seen on the reel, that would be casting green. So you heat that up until it's liquid. And then you have to shoot that metal into your canister. There's a couple of different ways to do it. One is through suction. They they suck it down using gravity and essentially like a fancy vacuum. At school, we had a centrifuge, which was fun, but also terrifying at the same time. So it's this big circular machine and you crank it in a circle till it locks. You put your canister in, you heat your gold up. And then when your gold is the way you want it, you let that, you let the catch go and it just spins really fast. And the spinning of that machine sucks the liquid gold into the investment. But I was always terrified, like, what if that gold like flies across the room? Then so then once that's done, then you take your investment and you put it in water or whatever, and it takes the investment away, and you're left with your piece of gold in the shape that you want it. They cut that sprue off. So that long channel that they made out of wax is called the sprue in the button. Cut that off because that's the extra, the extra gold that they needed to use to get down to the shape. Right. And then I assume that little piece that they cut off now gets reused for another piece. Is that? Yes, you can recycle. Yes, yes, absolutely. Anybody who's in the casting industry, if they're listening to this podcast, is going to be like, this woman is butchering. I totally got it. I totally got it. Like I could see it. Yeah. Then they send. So when that is done, it still needs to be finished. So those pieces will come back to the studio and I have to cut the little bit of the sprue off that's left. Okay. And then we do the polishing and the final finish work from there. Okay. So they send it off. They cast it. They do the scary stuff, right? So the mold doesn't get wrecked or whatever. And then they send it back to you and then you actually put the final finishes on it. Yes, that stones, whatever needs to be done. So the reason I do that is to cast consistently. If you're making an engagement ring that's worth $10,000, $50,000, you want it to be perfect. So if the metal is not heated properly, if the investment is not mixed properly, if the kiln is not at the right temperature, there's so many little factors that can 
make mistakes. You can have the the gold not flow far enough into your cavity that you created. So you only have three quarters of a ring or the gold will, lots of times what's common is the gold can come back and it's quite porous. So it's got like pock marks in the top. Can't polish those out. Sometimes they're just deep. The more you polish, the deeper they get. So for me, a professional casting company not only has the skills and the knowledge, but they also have, I don't know how, like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment possibly (laughs) to be able to make consistent results every single time. So I would, I would rather, that's one of the things I would rather farm out than do it here. Yeah. And it's interesting because you think of it as being very artistic, but there's actually a huge science component to it. Like all those pieces you're talking about remind me of something from a biochem lab, right? This has to be exactly this temperature. The centrifuge has to be exactly this speed, the suction, whatever, all those things have a very thin parameter they have to fit into. And if they don't, you don't get the expected result. I think when you go to some of the super large casting houses, I've never actually been to one. It's on my bucket list. I think there's actually machines that will pre-regulate temperatures. You pour your gold in, they do the mixing and they shoot it out for you. The casting that I have experience with is is doing it by hand, right? In which case there's a lot of human error that can happen. So that is one of the things that I send out. If I'm casting like stock to like size rings or if I'm making a cuff bracelet or something, I will do that here for sure. Because it's it's pretty basic. Yeah, interesting. It just reminds me so much, like in the veterinary field, I deal with genetic samples. And if you don't thaw them at precisely the right temperature for exactly the right time, whatever, like they're just gone, like they're gone. And it sounds like a very precise process like that, which is interesting, but it makes sense because it's metal and it's an element. And obviously there's there's that element of precision and everything to it. So very- Yeah, there's cool. a lot of precision. Even when you're setting stones, there's a, like you got a certain angle, certain depth in order to do it properly. There's a yeah. lot of a lot of precision, a lot more math than I anticipated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have uh, a cousin who's actually a diamond evaluator. So she grades diamonds. Yeah. That also has a tremendous amount of variability in it. I had no idea. And when she got engaged this year, I was like, well, that's a lot of pressure for your fiance to pick the perfect diamond for a diamond appraiser, you know? Like, that's what my husband said too. Although I made it pretty easy on him, it was basically just like ordering a pizza. They knew exactly what I wanted. So, yeah, yeah. So, but I assume he doesn't buy you jewelry like that's because that's something you would make yourself, or is that something that would ever happen in your household? It's kind of like, Okay. So my mother was a hairstylist growing up. Right. So I, I I got my hair done a lot, but my friends whose mothers were also hairstylists, we'd always joke saying we're the last ones to get an appointment. So because they're always, they're making room for their other clients who are going to pay them. Right. And for me, it's like, people expect me to have this huge jewelry collection. And I just don't, I think I'm just so busy making it for other people. I have a few pieces. And when I, when I go out before, when you could go out, I would of course, you know, pull something out of the safe from the dance line because you want to kind of advertise what you're making. But for my own personal collection, I don't have a lot. I did make myself my very first piece that I've made. I haven't made myself anything in years. So I made one this year for myself. Interesting. Now, speaking of being busy, maybe just throw two more questions at you and then we'll wrap up. But in terms of setting boundaries around your work and your personal life, like some people have rules, you know, I don't work on the weekend or this time is for this or like, 
have you got some kind of parameters in place so that you don't completely lose your mind? Because it sounds like you, you know, you could work 24-7 if you really wanted to. So how do you and how do you prioritize and go, okay, this stuff's gotta get done, but this stuff it can wait? It's still a learning curve. I think it's a bit of a process. I try to, I don't necessarily schedule certain times I'm doing this and certain times I'm doing that. I try to get as much done as I can while the girls are at school. I'm very fortunate in that my husband's rotation for his work, he works four days on, five days off, five days on, four days off, or whatever the rotation happens to be. So the days that he is working... I'm still working, but not as much. And I'm trying to spend more time with the girls. And then the days that he's off are the days that I'm scheduling, you know, podcast interviews and polishing. I also put in a little play area in the studio under the stairs. We've got lights and a little art studio. So when they do want to come in the studio with me, there's things for them to do and they can, you know, work with mommy or what they do. So we try to find a bit of a balance there. I think the key is just being present when you're working, trying to be a hundred percent. Well, you can never really be a hundred percent when you have kids, but trying to really focus on work. And then when you're stepping away from work, trying to really focus on getting the quality time. Someone else told me that too. Like you can't do a half-assed job at both. Like you're better off to, to give your work, your full focus, turn it off and give your family your full focus. Because if you're trying to, 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 half work, half spend time with your family. Like it never works, right? They don't feel like you're present and and your work suffers. But if you can clearly, you know, delineate those and and give one your full attention and the other your full attention. I've heard a lot of people say that's that's something that works for them. Yeah. And I think the key is to really be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. I think especially as women and as mothers, we have this, you're not doing enough. It's like you you want to have this business so that you can help provide for your kids and have a better life for your family. And then the irony is, is that the biggest hindrance to your business is usually your kids because they're always interrupting you all the time. Yeah. And you feel like it's this big tug of war between the two. So when you're spending time with your kids, you're feeling guilty about not working on your business. And when you're working on your business, you're feeling guilty that you're not having a tea party upstairs or at the soccer game or whatever it happens to be. So I think the the key there is being kind, having a kinder inner dialogue and just doing your best and trying to not make yourself feel guilty about either choice that you've made. Yeah, because that creates a whole nother problem, right? Putting aside that judgment of yourself because we're all our own worst critic and just saying, you know, what I'm doing today is good enough for today. It's good enough. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. Last question I ask every guest, if you could go back in time and give, you know, 10-year-old Tasha some advice, do you know what that would be? I would probably say to be brave, be brave and just go for it and be kind to yourself. When you look back on all the, the, the things that you told yourself that you couldn't do, or you were too scared to do or criticize yourself, just life is too short. Just, just go for it. Yeah. That's good what that. would you tell yourself? Have you asked yourself that question? Oh, geez. No one's turned this back on me. I didn't have any time to think about that. 
Well, what I tell myself, I think it would be, you know, you're good enough the way you are, you know, and be you, authentic you. Stop trying to be someone you're not and just just be you because that's awesome enough on its own, right? And uh, any events coming up, any workshops, classes, like I don't know if you teach anything that you want to tell people about or how we can find your amazing TikTok videos. So I have the website for the dance inspired jewelry is rhythmjewelry.com. Jewelry is spelled the Canadian way. And though it is dance jewelry and it's inspired by dance, there are a lot of pieces on there that are not necessarily dance specific. They're just inspired by movement and creativity. Instagram would be at Rhythm Jewelry. And you can always shoot me an email if you want custom work done, sales at rhythmjewelry.com. And I think that's pretty much awesome. And for anyone who wants to find that stuff and didn't have time to write it down, it's all going to be in the show notes so you can find it later. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been an awesome conversation. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on the show. Just wanted to let you all know that I have a book out this year. It's called Overcoming Awkward, The Introvert's Guide to Networking, Marketing, and Sales. You can find it on Amazon, paperback, Kindle, and on Audible as an audiobook version. See you all soon. Have a great week, Douglas.